just bow our heads and commit ourselves in that way to God. Father God, we do love you. We thank you. We commit ourselves totally and entirely to you. Uh, Through your son, Jesus Christ, you made a way for us to have a relationship with you, a right relationship with you. And so this morning we come through uh, the shed blood of Jesus into the Holy of Holies where we meet you. And there you meet us and you tell us about yourself and we learn who we are, uh, who we were designed to be and how we can live that out uh, with your help in our lives. And so I pray this morning as we study your word that you would speak to us again through your word and through this book to the Ephesians and to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible still with you, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning, starting in verse 11 and down through verse 22. I want to read for us from the book that Paul wrote to the Ephesians and then, of course, preserved in God's word for us as his people as well. So follow along either in your Bible or on the screen as I read, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2 and down through the end of the chapter. Paul here says to these Ephesian believers, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, an English pastor from the late 1800s, once said this. He said, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, 
imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. The church, the dearest place on earth for us. That's quite a statement, honestly. How many of you have ever sat back and contemplated the church of which you are a part and thought to yourself, that is the dearest place on earth to me? Most of us don't think in that ways because oftentimes we focus on the parts that Spurgeon called the imperfect, right? That person over there kind of rubs me the wrong way or that one over there, he sings off key. Or that person, every time there's a vote, they're always on the other side of me and a voter. That person talks too much. That person never talks enough. And, and the list can go on and on and on. That's because we are a group of imperfect people put together in this place called the local church. But in spite of all of those things, the church is a beautiful institution. Where else can you find rich and poor Beautiful and unattractive, highly influential and lowly influential, strong and weak, bold and timid, old and young, black and white, worshiping together in one voice to one king. Where else in all of the world can you find a multi-ethnic, monocultural setting where the commonality is a redeemed heart focused in a right orientation to a king whose power and presence ensures our peace with him and our peace with other people. There is no other place in all of the earth except for this place that we call the church. So how do you and I get to that level of appreciation that Spurgeon and others have had to say it is the dearest place on earth Or is that just something that pastors say to make sure that the offerings keep on coming? I think there's three parts why Paul claims that the church is God's plan for the ages through Jesus Christ. If you have your message notes, or uh, you can pull those out. There's three parts here in these verses that describe to us what has happened such that we have this love for what God has accomplished in this place that he calls the church. Paul first, in verses 11 down to verse 12, he says, Gentiles, I want to tell you what you were apart from Christ. And then he says, and then let me tell you what Christ has done for you in verses 13 to 18. And then in verses 19 to 22, he says, the resulting creation of Christ is this thing called the church. So we want to look at those three in order, and my hope is is that as we leave, we have a greater appreciation for what Christ has done in allowing us to be part of this thing called, again, the church. Now remember, Paul here is writing to the Ephesians. The Ephesians are primarily Gentiles. They, They are not Jews. And For all of the opposing groups that we have in our culture, uh, and we have a lot of them. We have uh, Republicans who oppose Democrats. We have uh, climate change advocates who oppose non-climate change advocates. We have upper class uh, against lower class and so on and so forth. For all of the opposing groups that we have in our culture, 
It is hard to overstate the opposition that existed between Jews and Gentiles. In Paul's day, there was no greater antagonism that existed between two groups of people than these two groups known as the Jews and the Gentiles. When God chose Abraham way back before this letter of Ephesians was wrote, written to be the leader of Israel, uh, God set them apart, the, these, this nation of Israel, they became known as the Jews. He set them apart in different ways uh, so that they would draw attention to him. They had special dietary laws that ended up uh, making it impossible for them to share a meal with a Gentile. They had special ceremonial laws. So they had thing, ways that they were called to dress, uh, their Sabbath practices, their modes of worship that set them apart from the pagan worship of the Gentiles. They had moral laws that God gave them that were not practiced by other nations. And all of these laws and ordinances and rules had as their express purpose of God to make the nation of God different so that it stood out. So that when people looked at this nation and watched how God blessed this nation, when they would inquire of it, the Jews are supposed to tell them of Yahweh their God and the promises of the Messiah that was made through them to the nations. It was never the intention of God to have only Jews as his children. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, God made provisions for any people to be able to come to him. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, there's often places where God will reference those who were called the foreigners and the sojourners. and They were always welcomed to Israel to come to know this one true God. In fact, if you go back and you read in the New Testament where Jesus was on the scene, uh, Jesus cleared out the temple because the, the Pharisees had made the court of the Gentiles into this money-making enterprise, and, and it so frustrated uh, Jesus because that area was to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just for the Jews. And so I instead of using the law of God uh, to be a tool to draw other people to God, the Jews ended up becoming proud. They began to consider themselves to be far more special than the Gentiles. And in fact, they considered the Gentiles to be outcasts, uh, to be objects of reproach. And so for thousands of years now, this animosity existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews would not eat with the Gentiles because their food was unclean. You know, want all that pork and bacon and such. Uh, the Jews wouldn't even enter into the house of a Gentile because they believed uh, that the Gentiles flushed their aborted babies down the drains, and so for them to even enter into their house would cause them to come into contact with a dead body, which would prevent them from worshiping at the temple. 
the Jews thought that God loved only them and, and all of the other nations uh, were hated. In fact, it wasn't even lawful to aid a Gentile mother in giving birth to a baby because you'd be responsible for bringing another Gentile into the world. The temple was set up in such a way that there were different levels there. There were levels for women to come and pray, levels for priests, and of course for the high priest. But to get to the court of Gentiles, if you wanted to go there, you literally walked down five steps and through a dividing wall to get to their court. And on the wall of that court, if you were a Gentile coming in there and you looked at the wall and you could see on the other side where the Jews went, on that wall there were signs, uh, archaeologists have recovered these signs that read this, no foreigner may enter within the barrier. Whoever is caught, the sign said, on himself shall he put the blame for the death of him which will ensue. Right? In other words, you're not welcome the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles was dangerously deep. It, it was murderously hostile, and it was without remedy in the minds of either of them. They would always have this fault. They were bitter enemies in each other's minds. So here comes Paul, and he's writing now to Gentiles who have felt that scorn, who have felt that reproach from the Jews. And Paul, having just explained in chapters 1 and in the beginning part of chapter 2, this process of salvation, how individual salvation uh, is obtained, he now turns his attention to what that means for everybody, the, the, the corporate ramifications of all of those individual salvations, right? So the first thing that he does is he comes to these Gentiles and he says, let me remind you who you were before you came to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, at that time, you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands. So the Jews used to call the Gentiles the uncircumcision. That was a derogatory term. They were circumcised. That was their special sign that they were a member of God's family. And so they would look down on these Gentiles and they would say, those are the uncircumcised. Those are the outsiders. Those are the foreigners. Those are the hated of God. Or at least that's what they thought. I think it's funny that actually at the end of that verse, Paul's making a little dig there when he says, oh, and by the way, that circumcision, that's just a circumcision made by hands. <laughs> the, reason he may, the reason that's a little dig and he sort of casually throws that in there as a, a bit of an insult is because in Romans chapter 2, in verse 28, he says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one where? Inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, Paul's saying, it doesn't matter outwardly if you're circumcised or if you're not. That makes no difference whatsoever. What makes the difference is if you have a heart bent toward God. And the Jews struggled. 
They held their circumcision in high regard. Do you remember what David said about Goliath when he went out to fight him? He said, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? There he throws it in there. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who should defy the armies of the living God? This was a big deal to them. Paul says, remember, Ephesian believers, you were part of that group. You were part of the uncircumcised. But here's why that was a big deal. In verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time, and now he's going to go out and he's going to list five things that were a result of the fact that they were not part of the family of God at that time. If there's, pro- if there's one word that we could use to describe the Gentiles prior to coming to Christ, I think it's the word without. They were without five different things. Paul lays them all out here. Look at these. Number one, he says, you were without Christ. You were separated from Christ. That means they were excluded from all of the benefits of the coming Messiah. If they didn't have Christ, they didn't have a Messiah. If they didn't have a Messiah, they did not have access to God. Remember, Gentiles, you were, at one time, without Christ. Secondly, you were without a citizenship says you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you didn't have a place in the people of God. Thirdly, you were without the covenants of promise. All throughout the Old Testament, God made these covenants with his people. He made an Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. With Moses, he made a covenant. With David, he made a covenant, so on and so forth. All of, all of these covenants We're pointing forward to the promise of a Messiah and the blessings that would come through him. These these covenants assured Israel of a national existence. It assured them of a land. It assured them of a king, of of spiritual blessings. And, And in all of these covenants, you see the Gentiles included... So especially the Abrahamic covenant because God says, I'm going to make a covenant through you, Abraham. You'll be a blessing to all the nations. But never did God ever make any of these covenants directly with a Gentile nation. He always made the covenant with the Jewish nation. So the Gentiles were aliens and strangers to these covenants. And the Jews never let them forget that. Many of the Pharisees actually in in Jesus' day would pray daily, Oh God, I give thanks that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. Paul says, Fourthly, Gentiles, you were without hope. There in verse 12, you you had no hope. The hope was for a coming Messiah, the, the establishment of God's universal rule. You didn't have that. So, and fifthly, and finally, Paul says, you were without God. Oh, they had gods. Of course, the Gentiles had gods, but they didn't have the one true God. In fact, that was when Paul comes along in Acts 17, and he says, the unknown God of Athens, let me tell you who that God is. It's it's Yahweh. This was a terrible state of being for the Gentiles. Prior to knowing Christ, prior to hearing the gospel, they are the withouts. They had nothing. But here's the fantastic news. 
just like God intervened individually back in chapter 2 and verse 8, now God intervenes corporately in verse 13. Look what he says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. That's wonderful, wonderful news. Geographically, the Gentiles were right there, but spiritually, they were far off from all of these promises. Now, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, because Jesus came and died on the cross, because he took the punishment for sin, because he made atonement for our sin, because he raised again from the dead, Jesus has now made a way for those far-off Gentiles to be brought near to God. How did that happen? Well, sin is the great divider in this world. Think about it. Sin is what divides people. Sin is what has always divided uh, people in this world. Sin is what causes pride, causes hostility, it causes self-righteousness. Sin causes animosity, division, anger, murder, and violence. The very first sin committed by Adam and Eve caused separation from God. The very first recorded sin of the next generation, Adam and Eve's children, caused separation even within their family. One was murdered. Evil continued to go down through the ages, down through uh, the flood where God destroyed all but eight. The separation continued all the way through the Tower of Babel. It continued all the way to the cross. It, but when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he defeated sin. He, he accomplished something through his work and he defeated sin. He conquered evil. And so when he shed his blood on the cross, he crushed sin so that when you and I come, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile, we can be reconciled through Jesus vertically to God and horizontally uh, to one another. Look what Jesus accomplished. Verses 13 to 16. We read verse 13, verse 14. He says, He himself is our peace who has made us one, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Notice something in verse 13. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't just bring peace. He is our peace. He says Jesus is our peace. It is through him that he brings the Jew and the Gentile together in peace. He tears down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Paul may have been th thinking in his mind about that wall back at the temple. He might have been talking about that when he's talking about that dividing wall. Paul may have been thinking about the veil uh, in the temple that was torn in two uh, when Jesus rose uh, from, or when Jesus died, rather, um, he might have been thinking about that, but I really think what Paul has in mind there is this broader application that Paul simply means those things that divided the two of you, Jew and Gentile, those are removed. All of the things that caused the Gentiles to be the withouts have been removed so that now they can be the withs. Here's how that looked practically. Here's how Jesus accomplished that. He fulfilled the law. Think about the dietary law. 
Jesus fulfilled the dietary law. And such that later Peter gets this vision, and Peter, Peter was a Jew. Peter wouldn't eat anything that was unclean, and he gets this vision of the sheet being lowered and all the animals there, and God says, eat whatever you want. There's nothing unclean anymore, Peter. It's all been done away with, finished in Jesus Christ. The dietary laws were removed. Now Jew and Gentile could eat together. The ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. There was no reason to have any more sacrifices. He was the ultimate Passover lamb. And just to make it abundantly clear that sacrifices were no longer necessary, God allowed for the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And there have been no sacrifices since then. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So now... Jew and Gentile can come together in Jesus Christ and they can worship together in a common way through Jesus Christ. The only thing that remained was the moral law of God. And that moral law is repeated in the New Testament. It's written and it was repeated visually by Jesus Christ. He did it. Right? So there was an example in visual form. It's written, now both Jew and Gentile together can read God's word, look at the example of Jesus Christ, and they come together as one. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Breaks down those walls so that all people who come to Jesus come together in one new body Paul says here that God created one new man in place of the two. That word new there does not mean new in time. It means new in quality. It means he, he took two and he made them one of a higher quality, a superior prototype, a higher meaning. This one body comes together and has peace among itself because it comes through the Prince of Peace. It comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. He came, Jesus came, and he preached peace to those who were far off, preached to those, uh, peace to those who were near, and for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is really neat. This organism called the church beginning to find its roots as Jew and Gentile begin to come together in this one new body in Jesus Christ. I think that this coming together has some very practical applications for you and I today. Because if you see what's happening here, groups that are formerly far off, they're bringing near. They're, they're peace. There's a new group. There's a new culture. There's a culture now, Paul's describing, a culture that's centered on Jesus Christ. It's centered on the Jesus of the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less. It's what Jesus had in mind in John 17 and verse 22 when he prayed, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me as you loved them. This new culture that Paul's describing here called the church is one. It's unified in nothing but Christ. 
Paul's going to come back to this truth later in Ephesians 4 when he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one, one body now. I think as a church, we have tremendous opportunity here in our community for this kind of a unique gospel witness. We live in an American culture that has all kinds of groups. Everybody wants to be in a group of something. This morning on my way in, we saw the mini airplane flying group over by the hill. Everybody wants to be in a group. Even the, the social media giants have figured this out. And so Facebook and Instagram, they all create these groups. They, they want you to be part of, of some kind of a community. But regardless of the community that they form, there is nothing like the capital C church as the best source for community. And I think as, as a local church, Bethel, has a unique opportunity to show the world what real community looks like. Here's what community looks like. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the people of Sarasota looked at us and said, you know, those, those people over there at Bethel Mennonite, they're a little quirky, a little odd, but you know what? It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what kind of clothes you wear, what your last name is. It doesn't matter how much money you have, what school you attend. If you love Jesus Christ, you are welcomed in that place as a brother or sister, and you are treated just like family. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If that were the reputation, if you go to that church, you will feel loved you will feel accepted. They genuinely care about you. It doesn't matter your background. You have a place with them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be the neatest thing? I think we have some work to do. I don't know about you, um, but I grew up hearing words like outsiders thrown around in my culture. I, I heard words like those English thrown around in conversations. And those weren't words describing unbelievers. Who were they describing? Non-Mennonites. I think sometimes, and I fear sometimes, um, that just like the Jews felt privileged and held others at arm's length, I think sometimes we run the same temptation. And, and we hold community so highly, and community is a good thing, that we run the risk of shutting others out. And instead of shutting others out in our community, why not invite more to the table? I think we need to be careful as a church, the words we use... How many of you have ever come into Bethel and the first game you play is the Mennonite game? What if you don't have a Mennonite name? 
I think we need to be careful sometimes about asking some of those questions. Is it wrong to want to know somebody's history? No, it's not wrong. Of course not. Is it wrong to want to know someone's genealogy? Of course not. But not at the exclusion of others who don't share those common things. Because we do have something in common, something far more superior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have in common. That's why a few years ago I could go to India and I felt right at home with those Indian brothers and sisters. Not because I shared their culture. I certainly didn't have their names. I couldn't pronounce half their names. I didn't even know their language. But we had something in common that was far more superior than any of that. We had in common Jesus Christ. And you could just feel this camaraderie, this oneness of spirit. We shared the, the same Holy Spirit. And as hard as it is, for you and I sometimes to open up that community to others, can you imagine how hard it was for these Jews after thousands of years of animosity? This didn't come easy for them either. They struggled with this too. In fact, as as soon as the gospel began to spread, the Jews really struggled with this concept that somebody could be accepted simply on the basis of Christ. Yeah, they would take a Gentile, of course, but only if he converted to Judaism. Back in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, it says this, Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you see what they're saying there? Yeah, you do have Christ, of course, but you need to become a Jew. Well, Paul and Barnabas had a real problem with this because they're out preaching the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And so they kind of take it up the chain to, to the big dogs who were up in Jerusalem. And that's where the apostles were and the elders. And they, they came and they, they asked the apostles and the elders to consider this question. Must one become a Jew in order to be saved? And Peter finally stands up after much debate and he says in, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And that is the conclusion of the matter. He says to them, people are saved by grace alone through Christ alone. No other requirements. That was hard for the Jews to swallow. And it took a lot of time and it took a lot of energy for them to work through that. In the same way, as we think about our backgrounds, I think it's going to be hard for us and it's going to take a lot of time and energy for us to kind of work through one of those things. And it won't be perfect but we need to come at people from the perspective of Christ and nothing else. One pastor said it like this. Think about the profound witness you and I will have if we make it our business to make sure that fellow Christians who are not like us feel as if they were in our living room when they are among us, accepted, embraced because of the gospel. And, he continues, if that isn't your heart, if you don't really care about other people who profess Christ but who aren't like you, then maybe you haven't understood the gospel in the first place. 
Who are you going to invite into our community simply on the basis of Jesus Christ? That's my challenge to us. Because of the work of Christ, this new creation was formed. It's called the church and Jew and Gentile, Mennonite and non-Mennonite are welcome into this church. Look what he says, what happens in verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're part of the same household now. We're part of the same body. We're believers in the same family of Christ. Here's what happens, though, sometimes in families. Uh, maybe not yours. Maybe you have the perfect family. But sometimes in my family, we hurt each other. Sometimes we say unkind words. We make cutting remarks. We, we judge the same thing happens sometimes in the family of God. So here's my challenge to you. Because we're part of the same family, because we're part of the same body, this thing called the church, if there are wounds and hurts that have broken down relationship that you have inside of this new body, where you have peace with God, but you don't have this peace with this other person, would you make every effort to restore that? Jesus is our peace, and he preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. The gospel, the call of the gospel of peace, not only goes vertical, it definitely goes horizontal. That vertical peace with God allows me to have peace with others, especially among others who name the name of Christ. It is our love for one another that is the most shocking to a watching world. The world seeks revenge. You and I seek restoration. It might never make the front page of the Herald Tribune here in Sarasota, but I'll guarantee you, if somebody in the world saw you and another professing Christian who once were at war with each other, and you now love each other, and you worship together, the world's going to look at that, and they're going to say, how in the world is that possible? How could that happen? I watched them before. They were at war, and now they have peace. How does that happen? And you have the untold privilege of saying, there's only one explanation of that, and it is a church that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with who as the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. We take our lead from him. And he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he's building his church and he's dwelling among his people so that we are like him. The church, as imperfect as it is, is indeed the dearest place on earth because it's an example of what peace looks like. Won't you work hard at your part in making Bethel, or whatever church you're part of, a reflection 
of this new body, this two-become-one body of Christ, this body called the church. Won't you do your part to make God look amazing as he brings peace through us to others? Why don't you stand with me? Let me pray. We'll close with prayer. We'll sing a last song and then you're dismissed. God, the dearest place on earth is indeed where you dwell. And you say that you dwell among your people. You dwell uh, among this new temple that you're constructing of which believers are one another added together to form this uh, new body. And God, none of us would sit here today and dare claim that we are perfect. And yet it is through the church that the proclamation of the gospel goes. And we not only proclaim the gospel, we not only tell of the peace of Jesus Christ, we live that out. And it starts in harmony among those who are part of this new body, part of this new church. Father, and so we want to swing the doors open and say, and you don't have to be uh, of a certain cultural heritage to be part of the church. You don't, you don't have to have a certain last name to be part of the church. You, if you are believing in Jesus Christ, come. You're welcome to this table. And, it, and, it, and if we hurt each other, if we uh, harm each other and wound each other, that we as a body are willing to go to one another and, and, and seek forgiveness and, and move toward peace with each other as we've received peace from you. Father God, I thank you for the shed blood on the, on the cross that, ha, that has demonstrated for us the self-sacrificial nature of what it means to make peace. And Father, I pray that we would do the same thing. We would lay down the things that we so desperately cling to. We lay them down, follow after Jesus, forgiving one another, loving one another. Father, if we're not part of a church I pray that you would help, help give us that desire to be part of that kind of a place where we feel loved and accepted and, and we can share in each other's burdens and, and share in each other's triumphs and we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Father, I pray that you would call us into that kind of a fellowship. We're not going to ruin it when we step in because it's not perfect to begin with, but you change us over and over again. Father, I love you. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you that as a body of, I think, mostly Gentiles sitting here this morning, we were brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. We here this morning who were once far off, who didn't have the covenants, who didn't have the promises, we were without hope, we were without Christ. And through the gospel, through Jesus, we now have all those things that are included in the family of God. Thank you for that wonderful blessing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.